Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, wherever you are. And it's great to be back on the air. And here we are now into part two of I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation. Part two, as I said from uh, the end of uh, the previous night's, um, or the previous podcast episode, part two will be discussing um, topics ranging from the arrest to the, to the second part of the investigation, as well as to uh, whom will be representing George Wythe Sweeney in a court of law in this upcoming trial. But before we even get anywhere close to the trial, we've got to start off with our leadoff question for tonight. What did George Wythe Sweeney do two days after May 25th? Well, for starters, May 25th is the day that um, the elder Wythe was officially poisoned by his grandnephew, along with the other two members of the household, being the head servant, Lydia Broadnax, and the 16-year-old protege student, Michael Brown. What else could George Wythe Sweeney have done that was bad enough that either is just as bad as poisoning a relative or worse? Well, if you ask me what I'm about to tell you all, I would say is just as bad. Except it doesn't involve death, but it is still something that's illegal and um, <clears throat> and very... Um, shocking but then again it it also explains why uh george with sweeney has uh turned out the way he has so <clears throat> pardon me let me give you all this answer two days after the poisoning incident occurred being on may 27th of 1806 sweeney goes about forging his great uncle's signature on a check for a hundred dollars you know a hundred to write a check for a hundred dollars in that day and time that was a lot of money you know most people that's you know to write a check for a hundred dollars that almost would be like maybe a month's um wages for some people or maybe two months wages depending on the kind of occupation someone's in but it was very unheard of for someone to write a check for $100. So, to write a, it's one thing to write a check, but now all of a sudden to forge a check? Does anybody know what forge means? I believe most of us know what forge is, but for those of you who don't know what forgery means, that means to sign, um, to sign someone else's name, knowing that whom you're signing for is not you. And instead, rather, it's um, it's your handwriting, but it's not in the actual person's um, name. And oftentimes, um, how one can go about determining forgery is they can look at um, previous checks written by the same person, written by the person who is whose name is on the check, and compare it to the check that was recently um, submitted. And forensics can determine whose handwriting is real and whose is a fake and what's in other words whose is real and what constitutes a um, a fraudulent signature so um when mr sweeney goes to the bank he um he gets uh, welcomed upon by mr william dandridge I find the last name of Dandridge interesting just because um, George Washington's wife was Martha Dandridge Custis Washington. I have no idea if William Dandridge was even related to um, George Washington's wife, but it could be possible given that uh, Dandridge was a very um, well-to-do name, last name um, in Virginia amongst the gentry. So William Dandridge is a bank teller at the Bank of Richmond. Now remember, folks, in uh, 18th and 19th century times, uh, most notably by 19th century, uh, we don't have what's called, of course, we have banks, but we don't have what are called sun trust. Um, we don't have, um, uh, we don't have, um, we don't have the, the bank, the names of banks like we do today. I'll put it to you this way. Another one being Bank of America. So there's no sun trust or Bank of America that's around in the 19th century. So, 
the Bank of Richmond might as well be the equivalent of a SunTrust or a Bank of America. But at the time, Mr. Dandridge is the bank teller at the Bank of Richmond. He examines the check and ends up giving Sweeney the full $100. By the time Mr. Sweeney has left, Mr. Dandridge and the bank president examined the check again and realized that they did something that they wished they hadn't done, or let alone Mr. Dandridge. had, And that was to have given, um, that was, he gave Mr. Sweeney the money when he never should have, in large part because, for one, the check, for one, his name was not listed on the check because it belonged to George With. It was in George With's name. And two, Mr. Sweeney did something that was fraudulent. That was, he forged his great-uncle's signature. So the two of them go about looking for a constable. Anybody know what a constable is or was at that time? They were uh, Constables were debt collectors. So if you had outstanding debt, a constable would come to your house and petition you to pay whatever uh, money was in um, outstanding status. And if not, then obviously you would have been summoned to court. Now, I'm sure some many of you all are wondering, is this the first time that George With Sweeney has done this? Well, prior to poisoning his great uncle on May 25th, George With Sweeney, believe it or not, folks, had forged up to six other checks of his great uncle. And he, he forged six other checks. And the Bank of Richmond had been made aware of this on six occasions that Sweeney himself had forged his great-uncle's name on these checks. So now we're beginning to wonder, well, why didn't the Bank of Richmond do something earlier? Well, I can back it up, folks. The Bank of Richmond did do something earlier about it. They did, it, they did something about it on six occasions. The bank officials at the bank took each check to the judge. The judge's name, we don't know whom the judge was in terms of his name, but they took each of the checks to the judge who was aware of Sweeney's problems. Well, if he was aware of Sweeney's problems all this time, shouldn't there have been some form of further disciplinary action? Well, folks, I hate to say this, but the judge himself didn't press charges. He was too lenient. He always made a promise to the bank that to the bank officials that Sweeney would get reprimanded. <laughs> but no court punishment ever got doled out. I don't know if I can make this comparison, but um, it's kind of like with uh, Popeye and that character named Wimpy. Wimpy always promised he would pay because he never had the money right away. Well, what did Wimpy do? He always reneged on his promises. He never paid. Well, in this case, the judge had been warned six times about what bank officials um, saw and what bank officials were led into believing was a legible check and only to find out that it was a fraudulent one. Now, of course, on the other hand, many of you are wondering, well, how come the bank didn't get it right the first or second time? Why did they keep allowing for checks to uh, be accepted when they knew that this was not Mr. With's handwriting? I don't know. It's very complicated. Of course, they didn't have the same kind of forensics technology back then like there is today. But isn't it fair to say that maybe the bank, I mean, yes, the bank did its part by taking all of the checks that George With Sweeney forged to the judge. But isn't it fair to say that the judge himself was at fault for not making a true promise to punish Sweeney? Absolutely. So maybe it's fair to say that both sides here bear some form of fault. However, I really do feel Remember, folks, back in the late 1770s into the start of the early 1780s when George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and Edmund Pendleton all 
got together and went about reforming Virginia's uh, legal code system, especially when it came to crime and punishment. They felt that the only two instances where death should take place in Virginia were by murder and treason. What about forgery? Wasn't there a time even in Virginia where if someone engaged in counterfeiting activities with fake fake money, they would have been um, punished by death in terms of hanging. Historians know that at least five or six other colonies in the uh, United States, even before we declared separation from England, went about um, hanging convicts who have, had engaged in counterfeiting activities. So could it be fair to say with all these legal code reformations in Virginia that maybe something's going to come back and haunt the elder with? In other words, we reformed laws that we thought were necessary to reform, but when it came to crime and punishment, were we a little bit too uh, lenient with our reforming? Perhaps so. Because I often wonder now, had, let's say, had uh, forgery been, con been still considered a, punish a punishable uh, death measure, that who knows, maybe George West Sweeney wouldn't be alive. We'll never know. But the sad part is, is that this fella got away with it six times, only to have the judge say, oh, well, I'll promise some form of punishment, <laughs> but it never happened. Basically, the judge was setting a bad example. The judge is supposed, you know, judges are supposed to be enforcing laws. They're supposed to um, hand out sentences that would deter others from committing the same um, inappropriate um, acts. Obviously, this judge finds it finds nothing wrong with George with Sweeney forging checks. So the elder with does confront Sweeney. I'm sure some of you are wondering, did did the elder with ever confront his grandnephew about these problems? Yes, he did. He confronted him on many of occasions about forgeries. Sweeney's excuses revolved around the following: losing money due to gambling and needing the money to pay the debts. Okay, folks, here we go. If he wrote a check for $100 and was given the 100 the full $100 amount, what do you think he's using the money for? To pay a debt off, but yet at the same time, a debt off for gambling. But what, but what else is he going to do in return? He's still going to go out and gamble because he's addicted to it. He doesn't have any boundaries. He doesn't care about the consequences of his actions. All he cares about is satisfying himself and doing whatever is best that pleases him. Now I can see why he truly is the black sheep of the family. Besides forging checks in his great uncle's name, Sweeney did something else too that was very um, inexcusable. He stole rare books from the elder with, only to sell them to outsiders just to be able to pay off his gambling debts. So it's bad enough that he's forging checks in his great uncle's name, but how about going behind his back and stealing from him? You know, and here's there again. Yes, it was great that Jefferson, With, and Pendleton all went about uh, reforming uh, the Virginia legal code system. Why not have stealing as a form of punishment by death? You know, yes, murder and treason are bad enough. Why not stealing? Shoot, before the American Revolution broke out in Virginia, if you stole, whether it was theft or just stealing in general, yes, you would have gotten branded in the hopes that you would have learned your lesson and people would have known for the rest of your life what crimes you or what crime you committed. But if you did it again, it was punishable by death. No questions asked. See, here again, folks. If, if stealing or what we or what we call theft had been still considered punishment by death Sweeney would have been hung by now and with would have probably never had to have uh, endured the wrath he endured not just so much from 
having checks forged by his grandnephew to having rare books stolen. But how about being poisoned when it came to drinking the coffee? Think about that. So, of course, little did George Wythe ever know that someone in his own family would turn would turn on would turn on him. Yeah, I mean, how can you how can you uh, blame the guy for not thinking that somebody in the family would turn on him? There's just there would have just the thought of it at one time of that happening would have been um, absurd, ridiculous. Because usually when crimes like that did commit, it was did take place, it's very safe to say that 99.9% .9 of the time, at least that we want to believe, were from the outside, meaning that it was non-family related. So prior to May 25th of 1806, had George Wythe warned his great-grandnephew of further, of further consequences should he steal anything as well as forging additional checks. Yes, and if it had happened again, the elder with would disown Sweeney to where he didn't receive any inheritance. So now that explains why, folks, one week before With died, he changed his will to, to what do you call it, sever all ties with his grandnephew and make revisions to where Thomas Jefferson would have been um, a beneficiary to inherit some of With's prized valuable um, possessions and I think it's fair to say that some of those that the rare books that Sweeney stole probably would have been given to Thomas Jefferson what's important about June 2nd 1806 George with Sweeney is arrested in violation of Virginia's forgery laws okay thank heavens the guy has finally been arrested and what do you know? Bail is set at $1,000. Did George With Sweeney get out on bail? No. He even went as far as asking his great uncle for bailout. But thank heavens, George With, the elder With, was smart enough and alive at the time to still have had enough um, energy in him and enough composure to deny the request. Because let's say he hadn't made it by this point. Who's to say that someone else from the outside might have decided to have had enough sympathy for this fella and then bailed him out? And for all we know, maybe he could have skipped town and never showed back up. I should also point out, too, that um, in this day and time, or in the time of the 18th and 19th centuries, I already mentioned it from the previous from a previous podcast that... Um, that um, gambling was a way of life in Virginia. It, gambling catered to people from all walks of society. There were those who struck gold all the time, like George Washington, but not everyone was fortunate enough. Gambling did destroy marriages. It led men, some men in family households to take their own lives. But what I think is unfortunate at that time was that you didn't have... Um, rehabilitation centers like Gamblers Anonymous or AA, Alcoholic, Alcoholic Anonymous. You didn't have those centers or treatment centers to help people overcome their addictions. However, the closest thing to an AA center in the time of uh, 18th century days in Virginia, and I had read about this um, in a book on uh, taverns oh, about six or seven years ago, Taverns in Colonial America in Virginia. And of course, keep in mind, in Colonial America times, the head church in Virginia was the Anglican Church, or what we all should know as the Church of England. If one had an alcohol problem, the first attempt to uh, rehabilitate the individual would have, would have meant having him or her go before... Um, the minister of the, of the uh, Anglican Church to meet one-on-one -on -one in the hopes that the problem would be cured. If that did not work and drinking continued to be a problem, the individual would be sent to the pillory where the public would be able to view him or her up close. And basically it was a way of, of um, 
it was seen as a sign of embarrassment. In other words, everyone else knew what you had done and they were frowning upon you. So you were sent out in the open and your presence, based off of your actions, hopefully would have sent a message to everyone else not to make the same mistakes that you had made. And if that wasn't enough, the third and final choice was to expel the individual altogether from the community. Sounds tough, but hey, they, that, was, that was their method of doing things back then. I also should point out that John Adams had a son, of course, and we're not talking uh, the son who became uh, president of the United States being John Quincy Adams, but he had another son named Charles Adams who uh, sadly was an alcoholic. He had abandoned his family on more than one occasion. And I remember from the um, HBO miniseries on John Adams, and that was a wonderful miniseries uh, documentary. If if there are, if any of you out there who haven't watched it, I strongly recommend doing so. It was done about 12, 14 years ago. Uh, the man who played John Adams was uh, Paul Giamatti. He is a, a very well-known actor, but he did a fantastic job. So long story short, Char- his son Charles abandoned his family. Um, Charles's wife came before John and Abigail to explain his um, continual be- his continuous behavioral problems. And I'm not sure how accurate this is, but uh, from the documentary, I do remember seeing where John Adams confronted his son in the not-so-pleasant parts of town in Philadelphia, considering when Adams was president, Philadelphia was our nation's capital. And it was a very heated discussion to the point where John Adams had no other choice but to disown his son. There again, folks, um, you know, uh, John and Abigail Adams did try, obviously probably did everything there was to try to get their son on the right track, but you can only do but so much. And there comes a point in time where all of us can say, you know, we've washed our hands enough to where we just can't do any more for someone else. That person has to help themselves, and it's got to hurt but so much to change. And so you look at people like Charles Adams, you look at people like George With Sweeney, they didn't want to help themselves. All they cared about was making everyone else's lives miserable around them, including family. And sadly, it did happen in colonial times, folks. This isn't anything new. It's a problem that's been going on probably since the beginning of time. So, as for, um, back to our main focal point here, on June 18th, 10 days after George Wythe died, his grandnephew is back in the courtroom for hearing on murder charges in the deaths of Justice George Wythe and his student Michael Brown, Remember, folks, Michael Brown died a week after he had been poisoned. George Wythe died a week after Michael Brown succumbed to arsenic poisoning. And remember, folks, who survived? Lydia Broadnax, George Wythe's personal servant. Now, on June 23rd, five days after, the court orders Sweeney to stand trials for the murders of Wythe and Brown. Okay? I think we are making some very good progress here. The court knows that Sweeney, the court knows that Sweeney is competent enough to stand trial. And they've already set a court date, being for September 1st, the court trial date. Now, I will um, talk more about this fellow here um, in a little bit, but I'll mention his name now, because I'm sure many of you are going to wonder for yourselves, who is who's going to be the lead prosecutor for this trial? Because after all, there are two sides in every trial, in terms of representation, you've got the prosecution, who represents the plaintiff, bringing on the charges, and then the defense, who is representing the defendant who is being accused. So Philip Norburn, Norburn Nicholas is the state will be the lead prosecutor, and he is also the state's attorney general. So, um, as for... Um, as for Sweeney, does he have a lawyer who's representing him just yet? No, uh, no one's come to his defense just yet. But then again, every attorney in Richmond has agreed that no lawyer should defend the accused. Well, don't you think that's a little harsh? On one hand, yes. But at the same time, we, ha- we have to remember this, folks. 
there is a lot of emotion going on right now. A lot of people's lives have been impacted by the death of George Wythe, in large part because Wythe himself was so revered by everyone in Virginia whom he came across. The man didn't have any enemies. At least, I, I thought he didn't have any enemies. I mean, who would want to harm this guy? I mean, he has done so much good for Virginia. He's taking on causes that that on, on one hand are very, um, I don't know if risque is the right word, or um, that are sens maybe sensitive is a better word, like taking on um, the rights to want to um, abolish slavery in Virginia. There are a lot of factors, but what many, many people don't realize until now is that is that someone from within the With family has been out to get him. Not just so much has been out to get him, but has wanted him dead. And now everybody's trying to come together and realize, how could this have happened? And I'm sure people in the, in the day thought, okay, yes, there, there was dysfunction in family households. But could it have gotten so bad to where it led to murder? They're all good questions. So yes, many of the all the attorneys in Richmond just don't believe that Sweeney should be represented because of the crime he committed. It's not so much yes, the forgery was bad enough, the stealing was bad, but it's the fact that he poisoned his great uncle. That's the straw that breaks the camel's back right there. So everyone feels very confident by this point that that Sweeney has no chance of being acquitted given how much evidence stands against him. Like I said, from the forged checks to stealing to the gambling debts and the poisoning. And everyone also feels confident knowing that the sole survivor, whom was an eyewitness to the poisoning, being with personal servant Lydia Broadnax, will be able to um, testify against him and say, Hey, I know everything that happened from the get-go to the end result. And yes, while I was a victim myself, I survived, but I know you well enough because you lived in the home. You were diso at the same time you were disobedient, you defied all orders, you went behind your great uncle's back. So I would certainly hope I would certainly hope that even in this circumstance, I mentioned earlier that there we were at some point going to talk about the different uh codes for for white people as well as for African Americans in Virginia, but I would certainly like to believe and hope that somehow there could be an exception here, given that given that a very, very well respected man in Virginia died so tragically at the hands of a deranged lunatic black sheep of a deranged lunatic or aka black sheep family member one would hope but we still have to keep pressing forward to find out where the real truth lies and how the real truth will come when when it's all said and done with now did george with sweeney's arrest on forgery charges to poisoning his great uncle get out quickly to many in richmond Yes, it did. Now, of course, remember, folks, we don't have televisions in this day and time. Um, we don't have a breaking news app alert. But the news got out very quickly. Yes, Richmond, there's about 10,000 people living in Richmond. I'm not sure if all 10,000 people found out right away. But I do believe that with all the taverns that are in Richmond, the taverns, you know, cater to people from all walks of life. Taverns draw large crowds of people, so it is very fair to say that um, if someone, if John Smith, for example, goes into the tavern and notifies others about what has happened, then the word can get out much faster, so this way the greater community as a whole can be made aware of the tragic um, circumstances that have just taken place. Who is uh, William Rose? William Rose um, is an employee of the Richmond Jail, or the Richmond City Jail. So technically, he's the Richmond Jailer. He lives next door to the jail facility. And 
so basically his um his home is next door and his home includes a garden i'm and of course i'm sure now most of you are wondering okay if his home is next door to a jail facility that's one thing but why is the garden going to be of a unique significance all right well here we go mr rose's servant named phoebe came upon finding pieces of paper to white powder clumps in the garden nearby the jail, nearby the jail wall, and the day after Sweeney was incarcerated. So in other words, folks, the day before this discovery, Sweeney himself threw out the package over the jail wall in hopes of destroying the evidence. That's not a smart move, folks. I mean, think about it. People in that day and time are very vigilant and observant. And if they see something on, on, the, top of, on the top of the soil or the grass, let alone, they have every reason to believe that there's something suspicious. Of course, of course Sweeney's excuse was that the package contained pennies in hopes that someone would be able to bail him out. <laughs> yeah, that nice try. So, they found two pieces of paper that contained arsenic powder inside. Okay, so we're going to find out here shortly how that arsenic powder came about. All right, who's Taylor Williams? He is a friend of George With Sweeney's. Well, obviously we know George With Sweeney did all of this by himself because we have not been told of anyone else who uh, joined along or that is conspired to go along with him. You know, we hear the word conspiracy. That means um, an, an act where two or more people are involved in um, taking out someone um, by means of violence. Conspiracy comes from the Latin word conspirare. But Taylor Williams uh, will go about telling goes about telling authorities how Sweeney explained to him the entire process behind making poison, which involved mixing copper and water. Well, would that raise a red flag to us if we were friends with Sweeney? Yes and no. I would say yes on one hand because it would come as a surprise as to hearing a friend say this is how poison is made or this this is how these are the steps how you go about making it on the other hand no because because there was a um a problem in Richmond where the only solution to remedy the problem involved using poison we'll find that out here in just a moment However, there was another incident where Sweeney admitted he wanted to purchase poison. And once again, Taylor Williams was present. So, it's strange enough if there's been one encounter with your friend and where poison has been discussed, now you have two discussions. To me, that would serve as a big red flag, knowing that, hey, this friend of mine isn't right. If all he's infatuated on is wanting to know how to make poison, or even let alone acquire it. So Taylor Williams had assumed that Sweeney was focused on killing rats, as Richmond had been heavily infested with them. Okay, and as I said a moment ago, poison was used to curtail a problem, and that was a rat invasion problem. There's an, uh, there was a poison at the time known as Ratsbane, R-A-T-S-B-A-N-E. However, it was considered illegal in its day to purchase over-the-counter, but druggists, or let alone pharmacists, sold it regular, regularly to anyone whom provided a written note. And I believe nine times out of ten, those whom were buying the rat's bane were doing so to, to eliminate the, rat, the existing rat problem. That's what we would like to believe. Rat's bane, combined with arsenic, was the most effective rat poisoning in the world. 
Okay, there you have it, folks. What are you using arsenic for? Or what should it be used for? It should be used to help eliminate the rat infestation problem. It shouldn't be used to poison people, whether it's family or none. Now, a week before the poisonings of George Wiff, Lydia Broadnecks, and Michael Brown all took place, Sweeney was seen by two slaves whom worked for, Nelson, whom worked for Nelson Abbott, who was a good friend of Mr. Wiff's. Nelson Abbott um, was given permission by um, Mr. Wiff to do some work in the, um, work, in the workshop of uh, Wiff's. However, um, the slaves did see um, Sweeney take a hammer and crushing white substance into powder. Okay, white substance. Shouldn't that uh, tell us something right there? We might be looking at arsenic here, folks. You know, remember, folks, these uh, this poison doesn't come in the form of a pill right away. In other words, he's got to find out. He's got It's a process to turn into uh, powder. Think about it, folks. If you're gonna, if you're gonna poison someone, and you want it to be powdery, you've got to crush the substance. Otherwise, if you leave it in its uh, hardened state, like a round, like a round circle, and you try putting it in someone's drink, they're gonna know right away that it's visible and that it's suspicious. But by putting, the, but by crushing the substance into powder and just pouring it into someone's beverage, they're not gonna know that it's even in there. Why? Because it's dissolved, it's hidden, and once you consume it and it goes into your body, it's, it's a matter of uh, life and death in a short period of time. So two days after the poisoning incident, Mr. Abbott found an axe in the workshop tainted with arsenic powder and a hammer having sulfuric coloring. I tell you, George with Sweeney's not the brightest person in the world. I mean, it's bad enough he poisoned his great uncle. It's bad enough he forged checks and stole um, valuable belongings of his great uncle's. It's bad enough he um, gambled money away. But talk about being really stupid in leaving behind evidence an axe with art tainted with arsenic power powder and a hammer having sulfuric coloring now but you can't fault the slave both of the slaves whom worked for mr abbott here because they assumed that mr sweeney was making rats bane to eliminate the rat issues and rightfully so but i will have to point out though that not long after that the um <laughs> that the axe that had the arsenic powder and the hammer that had the sulfuric coloring, they were, they were washed, the evidence was washed away. My gosh, folks, this is, another, this is a big blunder right here, another big blunder. Why not keep that evidence right there? I would think so. It would make practical sense as another means of pr proving someone's guilt, in this case, Sweeney's. But in the aftermath of George Wythe's death, were many Virginians on high alert regarding their personal safety? Yes. 1806, I will tell you this, folks, had really turned out to be a rough year in Virginia in terms of murders. Prior to George Wythe's death, another murder had taken place in the western part of Virginia in Morgantown, and I should point out, it's, we now call that Morgantown, West Virginia, but it was at the time Morgantown, Virginia. And what we now say West Virginia, but in the western part of Virginia, where a man named Abel Clements, who was married, he and his wife had eight children. Abel Clements did the unthinkable. He murdered his wife and eight children, bludgeoning them to death with multiple axes. I know that sounds very scary and gruesome, folks, but believe it, believe me, this did happen. So this did send uh, shockwaves down um, into the uh, eyes and um, 
lives of many uh, Virginians because they probably did not want, they probably didn't know what would be next. While crime itself did exist, many people in Virginia became more fearful of outsiders, most notably the foreigners and immigrants whom had been coming in mass waves. Well, think about it, folks. You know, you have 10,000 people in Richmond, the vast, about 51% of your population by 1806 is freed African Americans, enslaved African Americans. The enslaved population is 31%, the freed is 7 and then 13% are um, immigrants. And think about this. Many uh, of the natives in Richmond and Virginia are very fearful of what these immigrants are going to are going to do. Not just so much taking over jobs economically or competing with the natives economically for for economic superiority, but how about the potential for crimes being committed? Think about it: crimes between immigrants and natives. Who has the rights to um, obtain property? Who doesn't? We could be talking about mini civil war here. You know, murders murders did take place in Virginia, but they didn't take but they didn't happen very frequently. But let alone the thought of family members being murdered from within was unthinkable, but by 1806, this has now appeared to become the new crime norm. So the you know, it is one thing it's one thing to have someone be murdered, you know, one person. But when you take a look at the situation involving Abel Clements, where he murdered his wife and eight children, that that just would definitely send terrifying shockwaves. Yes, there were family conflicts and family issues, but nothing that would make in that day and time would have made people think that families, family members would have turned their backs on one another so bad to where mass murders, mass murder from within the home would have been the... Um, end result. So uh, back to Philip Norburn Nicholas. He was the prosecutor. He's going to be the prosecutor for the with trial. And yes, he's Virginia's attorney general. Some other things I ought to point out is that he is the head chairman of the state's Republican Party, not the modern day Republican Party, but the state's Republican Party being that of the Jeffersonian Republicans. He is a great admirer of George Wythe. He's very close friends with Thomas Jefferson, and he also served on the Virginia committee that helped run Jefferson's 1800 presidential campaign. Pays to have connections. Now, here's a part that we um, are all beginning to wonder. Okay, we know who's going to be prosecuting the cr this trial, this upcoming trial. Was George Wythe Sweeney entitled to representation as well as a fair trial? Well, I can point this out that, yes, we all don't like what he has done. It's inexcusable. It's unforgivable. It's, um, it's, um, how do you call it? It's just, it's shocking and appalling to think that a family member would be willing to murder someone else from within their own family knowing in this case just how highly regarded Mr. Wythe was? Well, the answer to the question is yes. George Wythe is entitled to representation as well as a fair trial. And how can I uh, back that up? Well, let's go to our U.S. Constitution, which was um, put into play back in September of 1787, and Sweeney's great-uncle was a delegate to the convention, the right to a fair and speedy trial falls under our Bill of Rights, our first ten amendments. It is the sixth amendment to the Constitution. And that amendment states, or let alone requires, that all those accused, regardless of crime, are entitled to a fair trial, which includes having an impartial jury. What does impartial jury mean? A jury that's not going to favor one side over the other. There is a term for that voir dire, the process of selecting an impartial jury. Well, who, which of our forefathers do we have to thank for, um, for the uh, concept of everyone deserving the right to a fair trial? John Adams. And believe it or not, that concept 
evolved in 1770, the same year that the Boston Massacre took place. As a matter of fact, for those of you who have been listening to me since um, June of last year, and then I mentioned June of last year, that's when uh, I first began podcasting, and the first book I talked about, discussed, was uh, Dan Abrams's John Adams Under Fire and the Boston Massacre Trials. John Adams represented the accused who um, killed uh, the five people in, the, in, um, in uh, Boston as uh, tensions um, were um, at an all-time high over the presence of um, British troops in Boston. Well, John Adams took on the case because he wanted to teach the community a lesson about how when emotions get out of control, what the uh, repercussions of their actions result in. Well, long story short, uh, two of the eight soldiers were found guilty, but the soldiers were uh, overall found not guilty of their crimes. But John Adams also believed that, hey, no matter how angry you feel about someone else's actions, the accused still has a right to a fair trial, to have their side of the story presented. I should also point out, too, that John Adams said this in the aftermath of that trial. No matter how passionate you feel about something, at the end of the day, emotions don't override the facts. I wonder if that will apply in this upcoming WITH trial. So, uh, was it unheard of during the 18th and 19th centuries for a defendant to have more than one lawyer representing them? Yes, it just so happened that two lawyers chose to defend George with Sweeney. And I will tell you this, folks. These lawyers are not everyday average Joe people. They aren't newcomers to the Virginia bar. These two lawyers are very, very high-profiled men, not only in Virginia, but throughout the entire uh, United States. They are the following men. Edmund Randolph, who was a former United States Attorney General as well as former Governor, to William Wirt, who was a former High Chancellor. And to make things even more complicated, Philip Nicholas, the prosecutor, his son-in-law is none other than Edmund Randolph. Folks, don't you find it crazy that we have family members that are going to be on different sides of the, um, of the aisle, not of the aisle, but on different sides of the... Um, of the legal spectrum in this case. I should point out, too, that even family members can't be um, involved where Mr. Smith is on um, the prosecution side and his son-in-law, Mr. Jones, is on the defense. That wouldn't happen in today's time, but we must remember in 19th century, um, the whole system is much different compared to today, but that's the way it was. Of course, I have no way of knowing if uh, Philip Nicholas and his son-in-law are even on good terms, but nonetheless, it is very, very uh, crazy to think that this did happen. Both defense lawyers had solid courtroom success at the highest levels in both civil and criminal cases, and each lawyer knew Sweeney was entitled to proper representation. Well, there you have it. It's kind of like how John Adams believed that everyone not only had the right to a fair trial, but they also had were entitled to fair and proper representation, but I also wonder if John Adams, um, I don't believe John Adams would have um, believed in having two or more lawyers. However, in 1770, we are still, at that time, we were still colonial America, and there was more than one um, lawyer on the defense side as well as prosecution. So that was a different, um, what do you call it, a different uh, circumstance under that in that time, but now that we are the United States of America, um, 30 years later in 1806, and someone's having two lawyers represent them, yeah, that's a very, very um, odd circumstance. So yes, both Mr. Randolph and Mr. Wirt do firmly believe that Sweeney is entitled to proper representation. However, both men took on the case as a means for achieving personal milestones in their legal careers, along with potential for an acquittal that would expand their statuses to even greater heights. 
Well, I will tell you this, folks. It's one thing to represent someone in court who is either, regardless of the crime they're being accused of. And yes, someone has to represent George with Sweeney. I wouldn't have wanted to have represented him. But then again, if you are uh, Edmund Randolph or William Wirt, and you're looking to enhance your status, I don't think you're going to turn this opportunity down. You're going to... You're going to uh, do whatever is necessary to help your client be acquitted. And if it means um, pulling every, um, every available um, loophole that there is possible, or every kind of um, possible uh, string that could get him off on a technicality or legal technicality, yeah, you're going to do whatever it takes. But at what expense will it come at? After all, many of us now have to wonder, did Edmund Randolph and William Wirt even like George Wythe? But if I'm not mistaken, wasn't didn't George Wythe turn to Edmund Randolph in terms of his personal of his being his personal lawyer? Yes. So why is Edmund Randolph representing George Wythe Sweeney? The family relative who poisoned his great uncle. It makes no sense. But there again, folks, Mr. Randolph and Mr. Wirt are taking on this case as a means for achieving personal milestones. They want to expand their horizons in terms of, um, in terms of acquiring further fame that will maybe lead them to other new legal outlets in the uh, law profession. You know, fame, it's one thing to attain fame, but attaining fame can be a dangerous thing. And who knows? Maybe that, on one hand, that might come back and bite Mr. Wirt and Mr. Randolph. On the other hand, maybe it might not. What I do know is that, um, is that these are uh, unpleasant times, not just in Virginia, but in the United States. Because after all, George Wirt's death is, in fact, um, a murder his death is, is one being a murder that has, in fact, shocked the new nation. And we have a lot more um, interesting uh, roller coaster ride ahead of us. But when I'm back on the air with you all again next, we're going to talk more about um, these uh, two men who are representing uh, Mr. Sweeney. We will um, The next time I'm on the air, we're going to talk about Mr. William Wirt. And then after that, we will discuss Edmund Randolph. Thank you again for letting me be on the air with you all. It's always a pleasure to discuss um, the his historical topics that fascinate me. And I'm always um, willing to share with you all what I know that you all may not know, but, how, but what I hope is that all of you who are listening will be able to share my information and apply it to um, new settings. Where, wherever you go, that you, uh, that you learn something of a historical significance. Well, uh, take care, and I hope all of you have a good upcoming weekend, and stay safe.